be in Philippians 3. Be in Philippians 3 today if you want to start making your way there. I kind of want to want to preface this entire sermon with a great big therefore from the end of Travis' sermon last week. That everything that was that was gloriously exposited to us last week about who Jesus Christ is as creator and redeemer. And if you haven't heard that sermon yet, go back and listen to that sermon. Everything that he, he proclaimed last week about who Christ is as creator and redeemer, all of those truths, all of those truths just logically lead us to do what Paul will be telling us to do in the text we're going to look at today. In fact, in light of everything that Travis taught us and talked about last week, it doesn't make sense to not do what Paul implores us to do in this text. This is the time of year, as has been mentioned already, where uh, people start making New Year's resolutions. As we go through the sermon today, I don't want you to think that uh, those are necessarily a bad thing. Those aren't something we need to be against. In fact, the way most people decide on New Year's resolutions is a, is a kind of a Christian idea. Uh, it's appropriate, in fact, to regularly take an honest look at your life and to see what is out of balance and to discipline yourself to make corrections there. That's good. That's what we're going to hopefully do today. So, if you've already made some resolutions for the new year, I don't want to dissuade you from those. What I, what I do want to do today is help us to see and strive for one great, all-surpassing resolution that should not just govern this next year, but our entire lives. So we're going to quickly and by no means exhaustively work our way through Philippians 3, 12 through 21 in a five-point outline that will help us to rightly orient our lives in faithfulness to Christ and His Word. In this passage that we're going to look at here in a second, I, I want us to first see, so these are the points, first see the goal to pursue Secondly, we will see the need to pursue this goal. And thirdly, the means to pursue this goal. And fourthly, the consequences of not pursuing the goal. And finally, the mindset that we need to pursue this goal. And if you didn't get all of those, that's okay. We're going to talk about them again as we get to them. So, Let's get right into it, and let's read this section of Scripture together in Philippians three twelve through 21. Uh, but I, I, I need to start at the beginning of the chapter in order to get some important context for what we are going to discuss. So, Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, 
but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So, the first point, back to our outline, the first point of the outline is the goal. The goal. And so that's kind of why I read that whole front end of that context, because verse 12 is kind of a weird place to begin the sermon, because when you read verses 12 and 13, it's clearly referencing something from the previous section. It says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So you see those, those pronouns there refer to something that's clearly pretty important. And to see what that is, we need that, that first section of chapter 3. In this passage, in verses 7 through 11, we see what Paul's goal is. We see what it is that he is striving for. And it can be summed up like this. The goal is knowing Christ and becoming like him. Coming like Christ, that is our goal. He says in verse 8 that he longs to know Christ Jesus, his Lord. He uses a, a personal pronoun indicating that this, this just makes logical sense for someone who understands the personal relationship they have with Jesus. It's not just knowing about Christ Jesus, not just knowing true facts about him, but knowing him personally. He wants to be found in him. That's what we see in verse 9. He wants to be found in him. That's where he wants his identity to be. He isn't just talking about growing in a particular category of his life. He's not doing that. So many people today, tomorrow, will make New Year's resolutions in these different categories. I have like the category of my family or my personal life or my religious life. They'll, they'll categorize their life and make resolutions based on those categories. Paul is saying everything about him is in, is found in this one category of knowing and becoming like Christ. And that is what it means to be found in him. One category. He wants to know him. And the power of his resurrection, he says, that power of God that brings life from death, that power that brings dead souls to life. He wants to see it. He wants to experience it. He wants to be part of it, to share in his sufferings, he says, and become like him in his death. He's not saying that he wants, he wants to suffer and die. What he's saying there is that he wants to suffer alongside of Christ. And he wants to suffer for Christ's sake. He wants to suffer for righteous reasons. And he wants to face that suffering well, as Christ did. He wants to be like Christ from the way that Christ suffered to the way that Christ died. Verse 11, if you look at that, it kind of sounds a little, little weird. It says, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It sounds kind of weird because it makes it sound maybe like Paul is uncertain about the promise of the resurrection of the dead. That is not what is going on. It's not what is going on. Uh, that's not what he is indicating. The verse is expressing the wonder of attaining the resurrection from the dead. 
Somehow, by by some means, in in some way that I don't understand, this is something that is happening. The idea is, is that he doesn't understand how it happens, but he does understand that those that it happens to are those who are striving to know Christ and to be like Christ. This is not to say that it is a work that helps him attain it, It's not a work that helps him attain this unbelievable goal, but rather the character of those who have been saved. The character of those who have been saved are the ones who strive after Christ's likeness. Those who understand what it is to personally know Christ as Lord and Savior are the ones who will long for these things. They will. This is the character of saving faith. That's that's what's being said here striving to know Christ and striving to be like him is not what makes you a true Christian, but it is a sure sign that you are one. So as as we go through this sermon today, and maybe you have questions about your salvation or that of a loved one, you, you don't ask, you don't ask questions like, did I really mean it when I prayed a prayer or made a confession sometime in the past? The Bible, the Bible never tells us to think about the past in order to test our faith. It always is telling us to, to look at where we are, to look at what's going on in your life right now. That, that's how you know. That's how you see. And this is what Paul knows here. He sees all that Christ is and all he does, and he longs to be like him. He longs to be like him. And after all we learned about who Christ is last week, How could it ever possibly make sense that anyone who has come to experience his salvation and has come to know him, has come to see how he has been revealed in the scriptures, how could any of us ever have the audacity to think, I don't really need to know him much better than I already do. I'm in a good place. This is the goal that Paul is talking about in the verses in our passage. This is, this is what it's pointing to. This is what I want us to see. I want us to embrace this goal, uh, not just for this year, but for our lives. That's what he's pointing to in verses 12 and 13, to know Christ and to be like Christ. The goal of the Christian life, if you could sum it up into, into one Thing, one word is Christ likeness. Of course, there are plenty of other goals and there's plenty of other things that we're supposed to do. Of course, there are. We're, we are to bring glory to God, right? The Westminster Catechism, that's our chief end. Bring glory to God, to die to ourselves every day. We're supposed to evangelize. We're supposed to disciple. But, but all these things will be accomplished if we give ourselves to this one goal of becoming like Christ. If that's our goal, if that's what we're doing, our lives will bring glory to God. We will evangelize. We will disciple. We will live as His. All these things are accomplished when we pursue this goal. So it makes sense then that when we are talking about this goal, it is also important for us to see the absolute superiority of this goal over all other goals. That's what we see in those verses we just looked at. Just look what Paul says about it. He says that he counts everything else a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Any other accomplishments he might have achieved means nothing to him by comparison. Everything else he calls rubbish. It's in the category of rubbish. He is talking in the immediate context about all of his former accomplishments, those things from his former life that he had the opportunity to be proud of. He's talking about those in the immediate context. And in a similar way, everything we do, every goal we set that isn't towards the purpose of knowing Christ better and growing in likeness to him is rubbish. It's waste. It's wasted time. You may have a great resolution. Hopefully you have this resolution to read through the Bible in a year. You should do that. We want you to do that. 
But the reason to do that is not to be able at the end of the year to check off boxes and to be able to add read the Bible in a year to your list of accomplishments. No, you make that resolution for the greater purpose of the great goal and purpose of knowing Christ and conforming your life to His. That's why you do it, to know Christ, to be found in Him, to grow in likeness to Him. This is the great goal of our lives, let alone each year. And if you make a bunch of resolutions and you keep them all, and you, you lose the amount of weight you want to, you cut out the junk food that you want to, you exercise more, you cut out social media, uh, whatever, all of those things. Maybe you even do read the Bible more and you do pray more, but if you do all of those things, all of the even good things, but at the end of the year, you just have a list of accomplishments and you are no closer to Christ and you don't look any more like him. It's been a wasted year. And you could go year after year reaching personal goals and hitting targets and living the ideal life that so many Americans are striving for. But if you're not growing in Christ, you accomplish nothing of real significance. You may have, at the end of your life, an impressive obituary with a long list of impressive accomplishments. But looking through the lens of eternity, that list could be summed up with just one word, rubbish. To know Jesus Christ, to long to know Him more, to strive to be like Him, that Brothers and sisters, is our overarching resolution every year and every day. That's our goal. That's point number one. That's our goal. That brings us to our second point, which is the need, the need to pursue this goal. The need to pursue this goal. Certainly, we can see some of the, the need for aiming for this goal and the sheer importance of it that we just talked about. But Paul gives us a couple more reasons why we need to see this as a goal in verses 12 and 13 that we just kind of looked at. He says, not that I have already obtained it, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I do not consider that I have made it my own. So we see in there, in, in, those, in those verses, that Paul makes it abundantly clear that he does not yet know Christ perfectly. That's the Apostle Paul saying he's not there yet. He has not obtained Christ-likeness yet. That's, that seems like an obvious point. Of course, Paul hasn't achieved that yet. He can't be perfect. That would go against his whole gospel that he preaches constantly. None of us can be perfect in this life. That is true. But what we see here in Paul is that he is unwilling to just do what we so often do and shrug his shoulders and say, eh, nobody's perfect, and then kind of settle for living with the same problems. That's, that's the way many of us get out of pursuing Christ's likeness, by shrugging it off and saying, ah, eh, no one's perfect. I'll always have my issues even may sound a little humble. Now, he sees his imperfection and all the ways that he is not like Christ as the ultimate reason to keep striving for it. I don't really believe that any of us here today, I hope, uh, believe ourselves to be perfect. Now, that's another issue you need to talk to one of us about if that is what you think. But for the most part, no one believes that they're perfect, Christian or non-Christian. Wouldn't call themselves perfect. The danger, however, is that what will keep many of us from striving toward the goal is not that you believe yourself to be perfect, but that you would live your life the same way as a person who does believe that they're perfect. What I mean by that is there's there's two types of students who stop working on a test. There's the one who finishes the test early and is completely confident in every answer they've written down. And there's the person who's just satisfied with the stuff they could think of. And they're okay with getting whatever grade they get. 
What will keep you from striving after Christ's likeness? From throwing off everything that entangles you in order to be more like him is not that you have achieved perfection, but that you're satisfied in your current spiritual state. Being in the place where you're satisfied with your growth in Christ is a horrifying place to be. Because it doesn't mean that you're mature. It doesn't mean that you've reached a good place. What it actually means is that you care very little for Christ. Because what you have essentially said is that I'm as holy as I care to be. And that's good enough. If that's your attitude, if you've reached a place where you're, you're content in your Christ-likeness, yeah, you're in danger because you've put yourself on the throne of your life. You're trying to live up to your standards instead of His. You may sound Christian when you talk about your standards and your goals, but they're your standards and not His. Goals and, and a way of living that you have created by looking at others and, and where they are instead of looking at Jesus and evaluating your life based on Him. And this passage, by the way, is, is such a great example of the wisdom of God in using human authors to communicate His Word instead of just miraculously composing His Word like, like on gold tablets like the Mormons think about their book. God uses human authors, and this passage has more weight to it when you understand it is a fellow brother in Christ striving for this goal, and, and not just any brother, but the Apostle Paul. Just think about the kind of arrogance and pride that you would have to have to hear the words of Paul, the Apostle, here as he talks about his longing to grow and the fact that he has this life of toil and striving to do everything that he can to know Christ more and to he has this deep desire to throw off everything else that's getting in the way of this pursuit think of the kind of of, of self-righteous blindness you would need to hear him saying that while you say you know what I think I'm reading and studying the Bible enough I think I have enough Christian fellowship in my life. I think I've overcome a good amount of sin. I'm pretty good there. I think I'm doing enough in service to Christ in the church and in my home. I think I'm doing all right. How could we ever think in this manner? Based on this text, you would have to be completely clueless at best, dead in your sins at worst. Because if you reach a point of spiritual contentment, then you either don't believe the Scriptures or you believe you've reached a place of Christ-likeness that surpasses the Apostle Paul. That's the only way you could think that. Being satisfied with where you are is not a sign you've attained some sort of maturity. It shows that you only care about becoming what you think you should be and not what Christ desires that you become. So one area then that shows our need to aim for the goal of Christ-likeness is that no matter where we think we are, we have yet to achieve the goal. Another reason, another reason that we need to go after this goal is that we're saved for this purpose. This is the purpose we've been saved for. That, that's what he says in verse 12. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul says here that he wants to make it his own because Christ has made him his own. That's an interesting phrase. The idea it's communicating is that Paul wants to take possession of this goal. He wants to take possession of it because Christ has made him his own possession. It's maybe a little better understood in the NAS rendering. It says, I want to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. We need to understand that our regeneration was not the reason that Christ saved us. Regeneration is an important part of our salvation, but it wasn't the goal. 
Becoming conformed to Christ is the goal. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. We are not saved merely to go to heaven. We are saved to become like him. So Paul is essentially saying that I want from my life what Christ wants for me. I want from my life that which Christ saved me for. And and in that very attitude, it's a sign that he is becoming conformed to the image of Christ. If you truly understand the gospel, this will be your response also. If you truly understand the gospel, that's going to be your response. God became man. He lived a perfect life. He was crucified and took all the wrath of God that was justly due to our sins on himself on the cross and imputed unto us the righteousness of Christ so that we can be in right relationship with God. He removed the curse from us that made it impossible for us to grow in holiness, that made it impossible for us to grow in Christ's likeness. He removed the veil that kept us from seeing God rightly and seeing what we're supposed to grow into. The end of the gospel is not merely for us to be with him, as wonderful as that is, but to bring glory to him in this life and the next for all of eternity by becoming like him. We don't just settle for heaven. We want what he wants for us. Imagine... Imagine you're in a, in a platoon. I'm not good with the military illustration, sorry. Uh, you're, you're with, but you're, you're with some soldiers. You're, you're, you're attacking this army. You're, you're going forward. You have this mission, and someone lobs a grenade among all of you, and a fellow soldier jumps on the grenade, sacrifices his life for that, and your response was, whew, that gives me a chance to retreat or to surrender. That, that's not why he did that. He did that for the mission. He did that so that you would keep going. So we have this great goal of knowing Christ and becoming like him. And it is a goal and it's a resolution that surpasses all others. It's one that we were saved for and one that we will always be and always should be striving for in this life. To become like him and not to just settle for a promised eternity with him, but to become like him. So, so we know that, but what are we supposed to do about it? That brings us to the third point in this outline, the third point, which is the means to pursue the goal. The means to pursue this goal. And Paul gives us several pointers for how we're to go about pursuing the goal. And in the end of, from the end of verse 13 through verse 17, he uses the metaphor of a runner running the race to help us see how we need to be going about the pursuit of this goal. And the first thing we see him talk about is his focus. He has one focus. Look what he says there in the middle of verse 13. But one thing I do. One thing I do. The the Greek for that phrase there is just two tiny words. Two tiny words with the emphasis on one. The number one. One thing I do. Paul sees his life as having this one ultimate goal. All of his life is about this. He doesn't have a main goal and a bunch of other little goals. He has one goal. One goal. All other goals submit to that goal. There's this one central driving force in his life. Everything in his life is either something that is helping him in his pursuit of this goal or something that is an obstacle to this goal that he needs to throw off. There's the same type of thinking we see in Hebrews 12 and verse 1 where it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Just like a runner running a race, we shed everything that's going to keep us from running the race the best that we can. 
This is necessary if we really have just one all-consuming purpose and drive in our life. If we have that. So the Winter Olympics are coming up, and one of my favorite sports watching the Winter Olympics, I don't know why, when I was a kid, was speed skating, because I was just amazed they could go that fast on, on skates in control. But if, if you're a speed skater, you cannot have the twin goals of trying to win the race and looking cool. You can't. Speed skaters have to wear this kind of ridiculous outfit. It's like a, it's like a giant spandex onesie. <laughs> and it goes over their whole body and it covers most of their head and they can just see out a little bit in their face. They look really silly. In addition to that, as they're going through, they're moving really fast through the cold. So by the time they're done, their faces look like they're, they're fighting off the worst cold ever. And that's the only part of them you can see. Now, they could wear some more comfortable, fashionable clothing and skate a bit slower so that their face wouldn't be cutting through the wind so hard. But they would never win the race that way. One goal has to die to the other. In order to achieve the goal of winning the race, your other goals have to die or come under submission to them. This is what Paul is saying here. This is one thing I do. Everything else in my life either contributes to this goal or must be thrown off for the sake of this goal. Can't afford to have two goals. Next thing we see Paul doing as a means of attaining this goal is, is forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Our focus is always on the future. It's always on the race ahead. How can I keep growing? What can I do next? We don't focus on past failures or past successes. There may be some past sin in your life that you need to ask for forgiveness for. You might need to repent of. Those are aspects of your future growth. That's what you need to do now, dealing with that sin. We don't just sit around and condemn ourselves for past failures that God has forgiven us for. When you're running a race, you can't just focus on how bad you did last time. If you're running hurdles and you hit the first one, you don't have the time to sit around and mope about the fact that you hit that hurdle because there's another one coming up right in front of you. In a similar way, if, if we went through a period of great spiritual success, we don't sit around and, and constantly think about how much we, we did for Christ in the past how we used to be so involved in all kinds of things and how we used to share Christ fervently. And that one time when someone came to Christ, uh, when I was sharing with them, or that one really great lesson I taught, that not only might be great, but it has nothing to do with what's in front of you other than motivation for what God can do in you. In a similar way, you might have cleared that first hurdle, but you don't stop there and make a big deal about it because there's a lot more coming. You don't stop running. So we focus on what is in front of us, not, in, not what is behind us, whether it be good or bad. We focus on what's in front of us. He also says that he presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Pressing on indicates that there is a struggle, that he doesn't let anything keep him from moving through it. It demonstrates that he has to force himself to keep on going. This means that, that we don't get to stop pursuing Christ-likeness because we don't feel like it or because it gets harder than it used to be. And this is especially true when you're reading and studying the Bible. Right? If you're reading and studying Scripture and you're not getting anything out of it, it's not a sign that you have finally completely exhausted the passage of all its meaning and you fully understand it. No, it means that you need to do a little more work than you used to. You need to study more deeply. You need to meditate more. When things get tough, we press on anyway. And seeing that we are not yet like Christ should keep us moving in that direction. When we run into an obstacle that, that tempts us to stop running, then we ask ourselves, so just ask yourself, am I like Christ now? Well, the answer is no, then you keep going. The answer will always be no. 
In, in fact, the only explanation for that problem, for, for stopping the race, for, for thinking that maybe you've arrived there, the only explanation for that problem is kind of what we talked about earlier, where we are satisfied with where we are. It's that we've, we've stopped looking forward at the goal. The only way we would ever think that we're in a good place is if we've taken our eyes off of Christ. That's the only way. It's easy to find someone else to look at and, and, and look at their life and compare our lives to theirs and think, hey, we might, we might be pretty close. But it's impossible. It's impossible to look at Christ and be satisfied with where you are. In verse 15, he says that the, this is the mark of mature thinking, to think in these terms that he's talking about. It's to have this attitude, this understanding about the all-surpassing greatness of this goal and the longing to run towards it with everything in us and that none of us have reached it yet. That's the mark of mature thinking. He actually, in that phrase, uses the term for perfect where it says mature. It's translated as mature. It's kind of a slight toward the false teachers who are claiming some form of perfection that he talked about in the beginning of chapter 3. He's kind of saying that those with a perfect understanding, if you really had a perfect understanding, then you would understand that you are nowhere near the goal of perfection. That's what a perfect understanding would show you. And in that next phrase, in that next phrase in verse 15, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. What he is saying is that if you disagree with this assessment that he's giving, if you disagree with that, the assessment, the assertion that there is this one overall goal to our life, to know Christ and be like him, and, and the fact that this goal is so superior to every other possible goal that it is good and right to run at it with all your might, and that if you think that you're in a position where you don't have to run towards it anymore, he's saying, you are wrong. You are wrong. It's actually pretty blunt. If you, were, if you and I were talking and I was making my point, at the end of my point, I said, this is how you need to think. And also, if you don't think this way, God will reveal to you that I'm right about this. That's kind of an infuriating thing to hear if you're talking to someone. That's what Paul is saying. He's so confident in what he has just said about this goal, about this purpose for our lives. Uh, he's so confident in, in this thing of, of what many people would consider some sort of radical form of Christianity, he's so confident that this is what basic Christianity is, that he says, if you think differently, God will show you that what I'm saying is true. So, so the next major point of application then is that we can take from this is to receive this rebuke from Paul. Another means for pursuing this goal, another thing to do to help us pursue this goal is to look to the revelation of God when we find in ourselves an inclination to not believe what Paul is talking about here. When we start thinking differently than what Paul is saying here. It's like he's saying the fact that your entire life is to be about knowing Christ and becoming like Christ for the glory of Christ is not even a thing for us to sit around and debate. He's confident that God has clearly revealed this. He's confident that if, that if you're a Christian and you don't yet think like that, if you go to God's word, you will see that that's true. So if we find ourselves not running alongside of Paul, not seeing things as crystal clear as Paul is seeing things, and we need to look to the Word of God to see if what Paul is saying is true. And when we do look at it, we will find out that it is. That is why, that is why we so badly want you to take a Bible reading plan and read through the Bible this year. That's why we want you to do that. When, when you start to be satisfied with where you are, you're losing sight of the goal. When the rubbish in your life starts to become the treasure, then we want you to look at what God has revealed in his word, and you will once again see for yourself clearly that what Paul is saying here is true on every page. If you think that what, that what I'm telling you, that what Paul is telling you through God's word here is true, that it's calling us to some extreme way of living, 
I promise you, I promise you that if you look at Scripture, God is just going to reinforce this same message over and over and over again, that living for the purpose of Christ-likeness is, is the most important thing you can do, and it's what our lives are about. In a similar vein, in verse 16, uh, he admonishes us to hold true to what we have already attained. What Paul is telling us to do here is essentially that we, we need to live, we need to live in such a way that we actually act like we believe that we're saved. We live in accordance to what we have attained. We hold true to what we have attained. What have we attained? An alien righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ. We've attained forgiveness of sins. We've attained adoption as sons of God. We've attained a new nature. We've attained an eternal life. We've attained a new master. It's Christ. It's no longer sin. All of those things and more. And, and Paul is saying, remember what you have attained in Christ. All of these things, they are yours. Now act like it. He's saying that living in such a way that is striving after the goal of Christ-likeness is the way that we would logically expect someone to live who really understands what they've been given in Christ. Of course no one who understands all of these things will spend their life in vain, worldly, fleeting pursuits. Of course they would not. Of course we won't. So there's another reason. Live like you really believe everything that the Bible says about who you are in Christ. Live like you actually believe it, and you will find that you will be running the same race that Paul is talking about. And the last part of this point, not the means, the means by which we do this, it's found in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. There's an obvious lesson on the face of this verse that we, we can't take for granted, and that's one of the best things that you can do in the pursuit of Christ-likeness is follow an example. To look to those around you or out in front of you in the race who are striving for this same goal and imitate them, to follow them, to, to learn from them. And the other implication of this verse is that this is something that we are doing together. We're doing together as a church. Paul is reminding us in this verse that we're joining together to do this. He says, join together in imitating me. Despite all of the personal language in this passage and the fact that it does come down a lot to personal spiritual disciplines, we are not running alone. We are running together. God has put you in this church to race with the rest of us together. We're to spur each other on and join together in following and imitating the good examples we have in front of us, the example of Christ most profoundly, we as a church want to be a people who are striving to be found in Christ, and to know who Christ is, and to be like Christ. That's why starting back up again next week, we will all be in here together as Travis intentionally, slowly, methodically takes us through the gospel of Luke. And he's doing this for a reason. He's holding a magnifying glass up for us in the Gospel of Luke to the person and the teaching of Jesus Christ so that we as a church can grow together in Christ's likeness so we can come together and see who he is and see what he wants of us and spur each other on to follow that same example. This is the best possible way for us to pursue this goal, discovering together everything we can about the one whom we are longing to conform ourselves to. And that last part of this point is so important that we're together as we move into this, this fourth point, which is the consequence of not pursuing the goal. Consequence of not pursuing the goal, the warning that we see in verses 18 and 19, the context suggests that Paul is talking about people who are 
at least not hostile to Christianity, and might even be people who are claiming to be Christians. It says in 18 and 19, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. We need each other. We need to keep spurring each other on, to keep pressing on, to keep striving towards the goal, to keep pursuing Christ's likeness together so that we don't become like this. That's the warning. Paul isn't saying, don't get me wrong, Paul isn't saying that we are in danger of losing our salvation, but the reality is that the life of complacent so-called Christianity leads to destruction. Paul has seen those who claim Christ but have no desire to grow in Christ, and he has them in mind right now, and he weeps over the fact that now they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, whether they know it or not. Paul is not saying that you are in danger of losing your salvation. He's contrasting the walk of true and false professors of the faith. There are those whose end is the upward call of God in Christ, who are destined for an eternity of growing in Christ's likeness, and there are those whose end is destruction. And you can see who they are by looking at what they are living for. He says their God is their belly or their, or their appetite. In other words, they're living for themselves. They're not striving after Christ. They're striving after their own desires. They glory in their shame. They, they praise themselves for things they should be ashamed of. They speak passionately and excitedly about all of the ways and things they spend their time, energy, and money on, all the things that take away from their ability to follow Christ unhindered. Their minds are set on earthly things, he says. This is, this is the kind of whole summation of what the whole problem is with them. All of the same things that worry everyone else, are the same things that worry them. All the same things that are most important to the rest of the world are most important to them. All the things that make them nervous are the things that make the world nervous. They're living for the same things. And I know I get called on this a lot. I'm not trying to get you all to question your salvation. It's not the intent here. It might be that some of you need to. I certainly don't want to get in the way of that. But the intention here is, is for this type of warning to drive us back to the goal, to see the dangers of living this lifestyle that leads to destruction and then be driven to run the race even harder. God frequently uses passages like this, warning passages, to sanctify his people. So if you're hearing this sermon, if you're hearing this word, and you're concerned about some stuff that you know is wrong in your life that needs to change, that's a good sign. That's how God uses passages like this in our lives to help us to strive harder after Christ's likeness. Right now, even right now, as these words in this passage are working in you and you're making decisions about the rubbish in your life that you need to cast off, you're in that moment becoming more like Christ. You're running the race. The ones who need to be concerned about their salvation are the ones who can sit in sermon after sermon, especially in a church like this, and never see anything in their life that really needs to change. And this statement, this statement that Paul makes about the doomed state of those whose mind is set on earthly things leads us into our last point in the outline, which is having a mindset that leads to pursuing Christ-likeness. The mindset that leads to pursuing Christ-likeness. So we're not to have our mindset on earthly things. We're to have our mindset on the things that verses 20 and 21 talk about. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The mindset that leads to pursuing the goal of Christ's likeness, living a life that makes every effort to become more like Christ comes much easier 
if we can keep the precious realities of those two verses at the forefront of our mind. We need to remember that our citizenship is in heaven. We need to remember that as comfortable as we may have made it, this world is not our home. We have responsibilities, yes, for sure. But to give our lives and our time and our energy to pursuing the treasures of this world would be as foolish as someone who goes on a business trip and then spends all the money he makes on that business trip furnishing the hotel room that he's staying in on the business trip. This world's not our home as much as it may feel like it sometimes. And don't be one of those people who cares more about your American citizenship than your heavenly citizenship. You know, it's good and right to be involved in the political system to the extent that we can be and to give the appropriate honor due to those who are responsible for the country. It is entirely right and praiseworthy to rightly commend those who literally put their lives on the line to preserve order and justice in our country. We should do that. It's even good to be apprised of current events and know what's going on within the government. But to the extent that it causes you to get really emotionally involved and waste time in relationships in an effort to defend or attack positions that are merely political, I know there, there are categories that are both political and spiritual, but, but ones that are merely political... To waste too much time in these areas is losing sight of your true citizenship. Not only is political affiliation not a hill worth dying on, it's not even a hill worth fighting on. This is an area where I think a lot of us need to look at Paul and be imitators of him. Paul was a Roman citizen. Do you think he had some pretty strong opinions about the way the government of Rome was running things? Of course he did. He spent most of his life, much of his life, in the chains of his own government for his faith. Rome was the most powerful nation of all time. Paul was a Roman citizen. And other than Christ, he is the primary character in the New Testament. But in how much of his writing do we see him engaged in commentary on the way the government is operating? It's so little that even though we know from history just how great and powerful the nation of Rome is and was at that time, if all we had were the writings of Paul to inform us about Rome, we would know almost nothing about it. Even though he's one of the most prominent writers whose works still exist from that time. And the reason for this is not because Rome wasn't as significant a country as world history and the history books make it out to be. It's not because of that. No, it's because compared to his heavenly citizenship and eternity, it just wasn't that important to him. Even when he had the chance to talk to prominent members of the Roman government in the book of Acts, what did he talk about? He talked about Christ. Oh, we should praise God we live in a country like this, and, and we should take every advantage that living in this country provides us for the, for the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. But we need to live in light of the truth that there will be no American flags in heaven. And one day, the U.S. Constitution will burn up either when a sovereign God allows an invading army to do it or when Christ returns to set up his kingdom on earth. It leads us to the next little sub-point here. We need to have the mindset that our citizenship is in heaven and remember that Jesus Christ will return. Jesus Christ will return one day. It could be today, as we just sung about. One day the, the heavens will open, we will see our Savior. Would, wouldn't it be awesome if we didn't even see 2018? Wouldn't that be awesome? 
is the great hope that keeps us going. It's our motivation to keep being faithful. This must be what drives us to keep pressing on in our goal. When He returns, when Christ returns, we want Him to find us trying as hard as we can to follow the example that He set for us, to be growing in conformity to Him. This truth, the return of Christ, provides us with the motivation and accountability to keep pursuing our goal. We should be eagerly awaiting this day, he says. To the extent that you are not eagerly awaiting and longing for it, to the extent that you're not doing that in your life, is the extent to which you've wandered outside your lane in the race. It's the extent that you've lost sight of the goal. The next aspect of the mindset we need to have is the understanding that when he does return, he will, at that point, he will transform our bodies into ones that are like his. It's fine to make resolutions about being more healthy in different ways. Right? We should, in fact, do this. We need to be good stewards of our bodies, and, and we need to govern our bodies with self-control. But don't become one of those people who especially uses this time of year to obsess over it. And the other aspect of this truth that is even more important to our thinking is that, of course, this makes total sense that this mindset will help us to live a life solely devoted to becoming like Christ. Of course, the fact that he is transforming our bodies will lead us to that. Because those whose earthly lives are all about pursuing Christ-likeness long for the day when that work is completed. This is the prize. This is the goal. We use this life to give everything we can to pursuing Christ-likeness, a goal which we actually can never achieve ourselves. But to those who undertake this race, who live this life with a razor-sharp focus on this one thing, this one pursuit, Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord who has the power to subject all things to himself, he will one day complete that work in you. He's the one who will bring it into completion. So, brothers and sisters, what this passage is calling us to is to make a resolution, not just for this year, but for our entire lives. And it's one that is actually absolutely impossible for you to accomplish on your own. But, without a doubt, it's the only resolution worth giving your all to. It's the only resolution worth giving your, your all to. Conforming to the image of Christ. And I implore you, if you don't see the all-surpassing greatness of this goal, to search the Scriptures. And God will make it plain to you that this is how we are to live, I promise. Use every means available that we talked about to pursue this goal with all your might. Don't fall into the lies about what this world tells you is important. Keep fixed in your mind the eternal realities concerning the everlasting kingdom of Christ where our citizenship actually lies. If that is our mindset, if that is our driving force in our lives, then we can be guaranteed that we will successfully complete this goal, not by our own efforts, but by the supreme power of the one who we are striving after, one who rewards those who earnestly seek him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. Thank you so much for your word, the direction it points us. We would have no idea where to go if you had not revealed it to us. Help us not take for granted the fact that you have revealed this to us. And I pray for any of us in here who, who struggle with this goal, with a longing to be like Christ. Oh, that you would, through Scripture and through the words of other faithful brothers and sisters, 
allow them to see the all-surpassing greatness of this goal. That we would be a church marked by this. That we wouldn't consider the, the fleeting pleasures of life of any significance. They're just a mist, they vapor, they're gone. That we would live lives that bring glory to you. Glory to Christ as we long, as we long to be like him. In Jesus' name.